every now and again, someone comes along who just stands out. I mean, you, you notice that person, you recognize them. They're, it's just the quality of who they are. And Joe was one of those people. Now, now what made Joe so unique is he didn't try to stand out. He didn't try to call attention to himself. He was just a person of high quality, and he stood out. Joe was a, a businessman, and, and he was known in business for being a person of integrity, a person who was fair, a person who was honest. He had a great reputation in the community. Uh, he was considered to be a religious man because he did go to church every week, and he even was giving of, of the funds that he had. But one day, one day, Joe had an encounter. One day, Joe had an encounter with Jesus Christ, and it changed his life. He went from just being religious to having a relationship. He had a relationship with Christ. He understood all of a sudden for the first time in his life that Jesus Christ had come to this earth, that he had been born of the Virgin Mary, that he grew up, that he died on the cross for Joe's sins and the sins of the world, and that, uh, amazingly enough, he rose on the third day, and, and all of a sudden, Joe's life was changed when he put his faith in Jesus. His life had purpose. It had significance. Now when Joe made a contribution to the faith community because his business had been successful, he knew that there could be far-reaching effects from the contributions that he made. Joe learned that he had more than just money and business acumen to contribute. Joe realized that God had given him a, a special gift, a gift of, of discernment, a, a gift where he could help others become leaders in the movement of Christ. Now see, Joe had always been one of those guys. He had always been one of those guys, even as a businessman, where, where he could see an intern that everybody else thought, well, they're just putting in their time. We can't wait till their internship is over and they can leave. And Joe would see that intern differently. And he would take that intern, he would take that intern under his wing, and he would give them a chance. And Joe was able to find the diamond in the rough and develop a person to become even a major player in the community. People loved that about Joe. They liked the fact that Joe had this unique ability to deeply encourage others. Joe's story has been somewhat immortalized. In fact, you'll find his story in the book of Acts. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, and we're going to trace the story of Joe through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, you've got to go almost to the end of the chapter to verse 36. And in verse 36 of Acts chapter 4, we read this, Joseph, 
whom I called Joe, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. For the first time in the book of Acts, we're introduced to Joseph, Joe. We're we're told that he's a Levite. What that means is he can trace his lineage all the way back to Jacob's son, Levi. It was from the Levites that Moses came. It was from the Levites that Aaron, the priest, came. Joe could trace his lineage all the way back to the tribe of Levi. And yet, as it so often happens... Along the years, as things move on, certain things about God's law are lost. And one of those was Levites were not supposed to own property. But Joseph owned some property. We can gather that maybe somewhere along the way his family had kind of strayed away from that. But that's okay. God's a God of grace. And that wasn't the point in Joe's life. We learn a second thing about Joe in these two verses. Uh, He's from Cyprus. Cyprus, an island south of Greece, an island owned by Greece. He's from Cyprus. He'd probably grown up there, but somehow he had moved to Jerusalem. Now, you know, relocation didn't happen in the first century like it does now. You know, somebody doesn't say, well, I got to get out of Rome. I'm moving to southern Naples. You just don't do that. And, you know, you, you didn't move around. So something brought him to Jerusalem. We're not told why he was there. But at some point he had relocated there. And he must have been successful in whatever business he was in because he owned property. But here's the thing. We never call Joseph, Joseph, in the book of Acts, ever. It's like nobody, hardly anybody knows that the J at the beginning of my name stands for Jonathan. Nobody ever called me Jonathan as a kid unless I was in trouble. And then it was Jonathan Scott Howington, you get in here right now. Then I knew, but Joseph had a different name, a better name than even mine. The apostles called him Barnabas. Barnabas is a nickname. It literally means, as the Bible tells us, son of encouragement. What the apostles saw in Joseph that we will be calling Barnabas from now on, what they saw in him was something deep inside of him that made him a person who just sought to encourage others. If we were to put that in our vernacular, we would say encouragement was in his DNA. It was just part of him. They watched him. Not just because he sold a field. He had been around a little bit longer than that. They, they, they saw this guy and they watched him. So encouragement was in his DNA. It's who he was. It was part of him. It was a, a natural trait. Uh, we, we've used that phrase, son or daughter of, in different ways. For instance, in our home. It's a well-documented fact in our home that the traits that came from my gene pool are the bad ones. It's very well documented. It's scientifically, hypothetically observed. 
Uh, whenever our kids did something goofy or off the wall, my wife would simply look at me and say, that's your son, that's your daughter. She was usually correct. Uh, we, you know, th- that's the trait they have from you. That's what they inherited from you. So built into Joseph was this trait of encouragement that was so strong that he was called Barnabas, son of encouragement. We're going to look at a portrait of an encourager this morning. And we're going to look at five characteristics that seem to be evident in Barnabas' life. And yet, here's the thing that we're going to walk away with. These aren't characteristics that are unique or different or ones that are just special to him. I'm convinced even more so having gone through this material again, I'm convinced that all of us are called by God to be encouragers. So we already know what Joseph did first, what Barnabas did first. He sold a field. And that's the first characteristic of an encourager. An encourager uses whatever resources available to help others. An encourager sees everything in their possession as something that can be used to help someone else. Barnabas sold a field. He gave the money to the apostles. We know from that that he was wealthy enough to own a field. In a time time where ownership was for the elite, he was wealthy enough to own a field. He was also in a position in which he had complete control over that asset. He did not need to consult with the rest of his family. He did not need to consult with business partners. It was his field. He was wealthy enough to own it outright. And he saw a need, and he saw how he could meet a need, and he acted because as an encourager, he wanted to use whatever resources available to help others. Now we know he could have reinvested the money. He could have spent the money. He could have done whatever he wanted. But he used the resources available to him to encourage this fledgling new movement called the church. And interesting, the way Luke tells the story, he puts Barnabas in direct contrast to another couple of folks. He puts Barnabas in contrast to some people who um, tried to present things as an image, right? We talked about them a few weeks ago, Ananias and Sapphira. They sold a field. They sold some property. Hey, if it's good enough for Barnabas, it's good enough for us. And then they sat down and said, okay, we're going to keep 30% and then we're going to take 70% and we're going to put it at the apostles' feet. And just between us, we'll pretend like that's the whole thing. And you know what happened. They uh, lost all of their money and their lives. But Barnabas was one of those guys that said, no, I I don't deal that way. What you see is what you get. I'm a person of integrity. If I tell you this was the price, it was the price, and you know it and I know it. Barnabas used whatever he had, whatever resources were available to him to help others. What do you have? What resources are available to you? Don't think, don't look compared to somebody else. What do you have? What skills have you learned? 
How can you use those skills to come alongside another to encourage them? You know, you think about what God can do. There's a, a story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell it. Jesus teaching people, there were, what, 5,000 men? And there was a young boy. He had two loaves. Don't think Wonder Bread. He had two dinner rolls. He had some fish. Don't think bass. Think smelt. Think sardines. And he gave them to Jesus. He gave to Jesus what was in his hand. And the Lord multiplied it. If you take what you have, whether it's a, a lot or a little, and you give it to Jesus, he'll multiply it. That's what encourager does. An encourager says, God, here's what I've got. How can you use it? What Barnabas did in any era was big, selling a field, bringing the money. But when you and I take the approach that God owns it all, that whatever I have, big or small, is God's and can be used to help another, you begin to develop encouragement. Now, we don't hear about Barnabas again for five chapters. For five chapters in the book of Acts, Barnabas just kind of drifts in the back. We, so so what, what is he doing? What's Barnabas doing all of that time? Well, let me use my sanctified imagination. I think Barnabas for that time was sitting under the teaching of the apostles. I think he was learning. I think he was growing in his faith. I think he was active daily and coming alongside someone else and encouraging them and walking with them. I think he was uh, listening to others. I, I think maybe he was using his business interests to help others who were poor. He wasn't chosen as one of the seven to distribute food to the wealthy, but I got to believe that he was probably providing some of the food. I, I think that's who Barnabas was. I think he was just being Barnabas, growing in his faith, learning more about Christ, and encouraging others and joining God where he could. But then when we get to Acts chapter 9, the story changes. Acts chapter 9 is where we're introduced to the individual that would become from that point on the main character within the story of Acts. In fact, there is scholarship out there that believes that it's very possible that the, what we call Luke and Acts, two volumes that Luke wrote, possibly were the legal brief for Paul's defense before Nero the first time. Not going to start a new religion over that, but there are some that think that might be why these two books were written. God uses them for our purposes. So in Acts chapter 9, you have this young man by the name of Saul. Now we had just gotten a glimpse of him when Stephen, one of those seven deacons, was being stoned to death and Saul was holding the coats and kind of giving approval. He may not have had a good fastball to throw a stone, so he would hold the coats. And now in chapter 9, he begins to step up. He wants to make a name for himself. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, 
so that he found any there that belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Saul was going to ask us with permission from the high priest to find anybody who was sympathetic to the cause of Jesus, anybody who was sympathetic to the gospel of Jesus, and he had authority to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. He was, as he would say in his own testimony later, he was persecuting the church. And, and so as he's headed into Damascus, he's got his entourage with him. They're riding horses. They're moving in there. Bam! He meets Jesus face to face. We have it here, verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice to him, say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? By the way, that would be like, who are you, master? I mean, if you know, a bright enough light that will knock you off a horse. And I've never fallen off of a horse, but I've talked to people who have, and it hurts. So he's laying there on the ground. He's hurt. Maybe dramatically the horse reared up. I don't know. And he says, who are you, master? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Yes, sir. He does it, and he goes and he waits, and eventually he does a 180-degree turnaround from breathing out murderous threats against the church, against the followers of the way. He becomes one of them. You know, this is, this is not even the point for here, but here's a freebie for you. One cannot have a true encounter with Jesus and walk away unchanged. You, you cannot come face to face with the risen living Christ and not have it change you. Now, think about Saul. We know a little about, a bit about him. He was in the Sanhedrin, which is, which is the religious community, the religious leadership. We know that he studied under a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. So he was a rabbi. He had studied. Part of that study involved learning what we call the Old Testament and memorizing it cover to cover so that if someone were talking to you and they mentioned part of a verse from a passage in the Old Testament, you could pick it up from there and quote the rest of the context. He had that, that kind of a knowledge, but he had also studied as a Pharisee, so he knew the laws, he knew the, the laws of Moses, but he also knew all the extras. He was a brilliant man, and here he was sitting there for three days blind, waiting, and God sends Ananias to him, and notice what he says in verse 15 of Acts 9. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. So God had handpicked Saul to do a specific duty. And to get his attention, he slapped him off his horse so he would open up and, and, and his eyes would be blinded, but his spiritual eyes would see, and he chooses him. And so as soon as Ananias comes to Saul, and as soon as he's healed, he starts teaching in Damascus. He starts teaching about Jesus. He starts going through the Old Testament scriptures, 
probably way better than I did it. I have been doing it on Thursday nights and saying this, this points to Jesus, this points to Jesus, and this points to Jesus. And they can't debate him because he's that good. And so they decide if we can't debate him, we need to kill him. And so that's what happens. So Saul stays with them. He moves about and uh, in Damascus, and they find out there's this plot. As soon as he leaves Damascus, we're going to get him. So his followers, they put him in a basket, and they lower him over the roof, and he goes to Jerusalem. And this is where Barnabas comes in. Look at verse 26. Verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. Do you blame them? Do you blame them? That he come and goes, hey, guys, hey, guess what? I'm one of you now. Uh, I, no, no, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. We, we no, no, I, and they wouldn't let him join them. But Barnabas took him. You see, an encourager sees others and stands up for them. Nobody is invisible to an encourager. Nobody escapes their notice. So he comes along and there's Barnabas. Barnabas took him. Let me, let me put in another way to translate that word took him. What's that mean? It means he showed concern for him. He took interest in him. I don't think I would be too far off to surmise that Barnabas took time to listen to Saul. They may have sat down over a meal. They may have gone out for a bagel. You know, they, they, they took time and Barnabas, however long it took, he listened. He spent time with Saul. He heard his heart. He heard what Saul had been told by Ananias, that he's been chosen by God to go to the Gentiles. He saw the passion, he saw the devotion, and he took a risk, and he brought him to the apostles. He interceded for Saul. Maybe he stepped up and told him the story of Saul's conversion. An encourager sees others and stands up for them. Now remember, we already know Saul is God's chosen instrument for the Gentiles. Had Barnabas not stepped up, God would have found a way. But we've got a great example that God gives us here of Barnabas who just stepped in. Has anybody ever stood up for you? Do you remember how it felt to have... That feeling of invisibility and then someone saw you, they, they recognized you and they, they treated you like you were important, like you mattered. Remember all of a sudden feeling you're not invisible, but, but you're important enough for somebody to notice. Remember what it was like to have someone really believe in you? That's what Par Barnabas did for Saul. He believed in him. Have you ever stood up for another person? Have you ever stepped in for someone, taken interest in them, introduced them to someone? <laughs> Years ago, we um, took a bunch of kids up to a camp in Michigan. And uh, it was they weren't teenagers. 
they were younger, middle schoolers and upper elementary. I was out of my element. Uh, But while I'm wrestling kids and doing stuff, my dear wife goes and sits down and spends some time talking to the camp director and his wife. She heard their story. Later on, she came to me and she goes, you know what, we get these kids settled, you need to go hear these people. What God has done in their life is amazing. And we ended up going into a little town somewhere there in Michigan and having coffee with them and heard just the greatest story of God's redemptive power in somebody else's life. It was amazing. In a sense, my wife stood up for them and said, let's listen to these people. We ended up going back to that camp for retreats and a couple other things. There was a a little bit of a friendship that happened there for a while. Have you ever stood up for another person? It's risky. Think of the risk that Barnabas took. He took a huge risk. What a great fish to reel in for the anti-Christ cause for here's Barnabas. He's wealthy and everything and we can seize all of his assets. That's risky. You know what? When you stand up for another person, when you see another person, when you notice another person, they may thank you. They may not. They may become a friend or they may use your grace to their advantage. But when you live by the Spirit, as I believe Barnabas was, when you trust God, as I believe Barnabas did, then you aren't worried about the results. You're focused on being obedient. And sometimes obedience to God means taking the risk for another person. Saul preaches in Jerusalem a little bit, and then he heads out. Goes back to Tarsus, where he's from, and life kind of goes on. And once again, Barnabas just kind of drifts into the background. See, encouragers don't always seek the limelight. They just, hey, here's an opportunity. I do it. I've done what I can do. Look at this. He's growing. I, I can drift back into the shadows a little bit, as it were, and just do the things God puts in front of me to do on a day in, day out, mundane basis, and then... Chapter 11 comes along. Chapter 11, verse 19. Something starts to happen. This movement that started in Jerusalem is beginning to expand. Just as Jesus said, be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. And all of a sudden, word comes to the apostles that up north, up in Antioch, uh, because remember, after Stephen was persecuted, was stoned, there was persecution and people scattered. But when they scattered, they took the good news of Jesus with them, and, and it begins to permeate. And in Antioch, things are happening. And people went from to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and, and the word is spreading, and, and uh, things are beginning to happen, and news reaches the church in Jerusalem, and they say, okay, we got to send somebody up to Antioch to see what's going on, to check it out, to make sure this is well and good. And, and they got to be a person that, that understands and can really speak Greek real well and can converse in that, because that's what they speak in Antioch. So they ought to probably understand the culture a little bit. But it's got to be somebody that we can trust, somebody that we know will see things as they are and, and will really report back to us. And they went, oh, wait, hey, Barnabas, come here. Verse 22, news reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. You see, an encourager is one who can be trusted to see things as they are. 
So there's this renewal taking place. They want to make sure it's on the up and up. Barnabas goes up. And notice what happens. When he arrived, he saw what the grace of God has done. He was glad. And what did he do? He encouraged them. Why? Because that's who he is. He encouraged them. He, he said, you are doing great. This is amazing. God is at work here. Keep doing what you're doing. I am so encouraged. I want you to be encouraged. This is super. He encouraged them. And he reminded them, remain true to the Lord with all your heart. Look at what it says about him in verse 24. Barnabas was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. But Barnabas saw something else. If this momentum was going to continue, if this momentum was going to build, if, if what's happening here in Antioch is going to mature and grow, we're going to need help. We need help. We're going to, you know, because the apostles are busy in Jerusalem. They're doing their thing, and they need to be there doing that. We're going to need help. So what's he do? He travels some 100 miles away. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. It's been about seven years roughly speaking, since Saul was in Jerusalem. In seven years, Barnabas hasn't forgotten about Saul. In seven years, he hasn't forgotten about what he heard from this man. For seven years, he was thinking, I wonder how God's going to use this guy. And he gets to Antioch, where they're not necessarily all Jewish. There are Jews there, but it's, you know, it's, it's beginning to have some it's mixture. There's some Gentiles. Hey, wait a minute. God said that he had called Saul to go to the Gentiles. Now, where did he live again? Tarsus. He went and he found him. Okay, remove from your mind whitepages.com, Saul, Tarsus. Oh, okay, there's an address. I'll check that out. Okay, plug that into my, my GPS. Take me right to it. No, Tarsus, an amazing city with a huge history. Uh, city at that time of about 500,000 people. And so Barnabas goes about 86 miles away. He pays for the trip himself. You know, he's not going to be able to expense that to the church in Jerusalem because by that time, the church of Jerusalem is actually struggling financially. So he pays for the trip himself, and he goes and he begins to look for Saul. Probably started at the synagogues. Didn't have a, a picture, you know, didn't, you know, hey, have you seen this guy? You know, he just goes, he looks, he listens, and eventually he finds him. He finds Saul, and he brings him back to Antioch. And he lets Saul start to teach. You see, what I learned from Barnabas here is it wasn't about Barnabas. Because an encourager has a God-centered humility. An encourager is all about God. An encourager with a God-centered humility encourages others to use their gifts and abilities. Barnabas says, we need clear teaching, we need mature teaching, we need somebody who can explain the scriptures. Let's go look for Paul, for Saul. Let's bring him back. Um, 
they, they, they start working for a year together. In fact, here in, at the very end of this time, they, they take some money down to uh, Jerusalem. Verse 29, the disciples, each one was able, was able to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And how did they do it? They sent Barnabas and Saul down to Judea to give a gift to the elders. And then for the rest, all of chapter 12 and all, they're ministering for about a year. They're spending time there in this church in Antioch, a church that was multi-ethnic, multicultural. The gospel is growing. And, and so there comes a point where God is ready to move the next step. And we see that in chapter 13. When, uh, really it's, 1225, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, that's their mission to Jerusalem, they returned and taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menahan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. If you track the book of Acts from this point on, you're going to notice something very subtle. We've, you've already seen it time and again. Barnabas and Saul. Who's the first name listed in 13.1? Barnabas. Who did the Holy Spirit set apart? Barnabas and Saul. The two of them went on their way, and uh, it's, it's Barnabas and Saul. They meet this proconsul, Barnabas and Saul. But by the time you get to chapter 13, verse 13, something changes. In chapter 13 and verse 13, it says, From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia. And by the time you get to chapter 13 and verse 42, it reads this way. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue. In biblical literature, the order of names can sometimes be very important. You see, up until this point in time, Barnabas is the primary character. But there comes a point where Barnabas takes a back seat. He steps back and he kind of launches Paul to the forefront because Paul is the one who the Holy Spirit said, I've set him apart for work to the Gentiles. And so Barnabas is willing to step back because a person with a God-centered humility doesn't always have to be first. Barnabas had that God-centered humility. What's his, what was his job? To go and to take Paul, to listen Saul, to listen to him, to bring him to the apostles and say, this guy's legit. You know, you need to listen to him. And then to uh, go back and get him and say, come on, come on. I know you're having a great life here in Tarsus, but you got to come with me. You are needed in Antioch. And so he's in Antioch, and there's this list of names, and down at the bottom is Saul. But when the Holy Spirit says, set aside Barnabas and Saul, okay, let's go together. And so they do. They go off together, and they have this ministry, and eventually Barnabas just kind of steps back, and Paul now, uh, Saul now called Paul, becomes the most important. Barnabas had that humility that said, it's not about me. It's about God. And if God wants him first, praise God. 
There's one other thing, one other characteristic that I want you to look at. It's, it's, a, it's a minor detail. In fact, if, if you're not careful, you're going to miss it. I, I kind of purposely glossed over it. Acts 12.25, when Barnabas and Saul left Jerusalem to go back to Antioch, they took John Mark with them. Now we learn from Colossians 4.10, this was his cousin. Barnabas being Barnabas sees something in his young cousin, something that he believes God wants to develop. And in chapter 13 and verse 5, you'll see that they took John Mark with them. He went on that journey with them. But notice, uh, I, I skipped it too and did it on purpose. In verse 13, at the very end, they're at Perga where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Early on in that first journey, John said, for whatever reason, we don't know why. We don't know what was going on. He may have gotten homesick. It may have just been too much for him to handle. For some reason, he leaves them. And they go on with their journey. They continue for roughly three years, and then they return. And they return and go down to a council, the first church council held at Jerusalem. And a lot goes on there. A lot of decisions are made. But for our purposes, we bring it into chapter 15 and verse 36. Barnabas and Paul, Paul uh, says to Barnabas, you know, we need to make another trip. We need to go visit the churches where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And Barnabas said, great idea, Paul. I'm in. I'm in. Let's, let me go get John Mark, get him packed up, let him go with us. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because they had, he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them on the work. I think Paul, okay, and I could get to heaven and get smacked around for this, but this is my think. I think Paul was a little bit of a hard guy to work with at times. I think he had to be for what he had to do. And he's not willing to give John Mark a second chance. Notice what happens here. It's, a, it's actually, for me, a very sad part of Scripture. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Paul and Barnabas get into an argument Barnabas, when nobody else would listen to Saul, takes him, brings him, intercedes for him. And now Barnabas says, we got to give John Mark another chance. And Paul, for whatever reason, says, absolutely not. He is not going with us. They get into this argument. And you know what? From this point on, although Barnabas is mentioned in Colossians 4, you don't Ever see Paul and Barnabas again in Scripture? I maybe it may have happened and just didn't get written down, but they separate. And Paul takes Silas and goes on his journey, and Luke goes with him, which is why the story continues that way. But Barnabas, and I want you to look what he did. This is one of those moments. Maybe you don't have these moments, but I have these moments when I read Scripture and something hits me that's never hit me before, and it's like, whoa. And this is one of those moments, and it's just so simple, but all of a sudden, this last week when I was finalizing this, I went, no way, and God said, way. Uh, they, they had such a sharp disagreement, they parted company. Barnabas took Mark, and he sailed for Cyprus. Where was Barnabas from? Cyprus. Where did they take their, their first stop on their first missionary journey? Cyprus. 
Come on, John. Come on, cuz. We're going to go back to Cyprus. Maybe grandma and grandpa lived there. You know they're always going to accept you. Maybe there were relatives there. Maybe there were people they knew there. Let's go back to where I'm going to, I want you to start over again. I know you messed up. I get it. But let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Cyprus. Let's go see what God can do. I believe you've got potential. I believe there's something in you God wants to use. And, and, and I'm going to let God use me to build you up. Did it work? Did he encourage him? Did he build him up? I believe he did an amazing job. I believe God used him in a big way. You say, how, how can you say that? We don't hear about him. Oh, we do. You see, in my Bible, maybe yours too, the second gospel is the gospel of Mark. Yep, same guy, John Mark. See, we have evidence from 1 Peter 5, verse 13, that Mark was closely associated with the apostle Peter. <laughs> but it gets better. I mentioned Colossians 4, where we see that Mark was Barnabas' cousin. Why do we see that? Because Paul says, Barnabas' cousin Mark is a fellow prisoner. But it gets even better. In 2 Timothy 4, probably the last letter that the Apostle Paul writes. In prison, second time, awaiting his execution, in prison where you don't get three squares and, and a cot to sleep on because somebody has to bring food to you. you are, it, it is awful in a Roman prison. And he's writing to Timothy. And I want you to listen to these words and listen to the, the longing and the humanity. Do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Look at this verse, 1 Thessalonians, or 2 Timothy 4.11. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. Why was he helpful to Paul in his ministry? Because a guy named Joe wouldn't quit on him. A guy named Joe was an encourager. A guy named Joe said, you got what it takes. And I know you messed up, but God is a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances. Because see, an encourager is consistent in their character. Wow. If you and I were just remembered as encouragers, I mean, if, if that were the only thing written on our gravestone someday, it would be the fruit of a life well lived. And to be an encourager really isn't all that hard. It means learning and believing and really leaving, le living the truth. Learning, believing, and living the truth that Jesus is the first, the middle, and the last in my life, that it's all about Jesus. You see, I believe anyone can be an encourager. You encourage by just using whatever resources you have, 
right now to help somebody else. You encourage when you see others and you stand up for them. You encourage when you look around and you can see things as they really are at that moment and you can think of ways to step in and help those be better. You encourage when you grow in your God-centered humility and understand that you don't have to be first. And you encourage when you let God help you be consistent in your character. Barnabas is a great example to us. Just quietly, daily, doing what he could for the cause of Jesus and coming alongside others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing portrait, word picture, this guy named Barnabas. I know we all have our list of people we want to talk to when we get to heaven. He'll probably be sitting there just watching and smiling. I want to talk to Barnabas. I want to know what makes an encourager tick. Thank you for giving us an example of it today. May the prayer of our heart be, Lord, allow me to encourage someone today. And may that be a daily prayer. It means humility. It means not thinking of ourselves first. But it also means bringing glory and honor to your name. May we be encouragers in Jesus' name. Amen.